Mother's Day is always kind of a landmine for a pastor. Because how do you go about it? Do you pause your regular preaching schedule to focus on mothers? Or just continue right along with what you've been teaching? Well, I'm in a difficult situation because what I've been teaching recently focuses on men and leadership. So, if I were to continue right along with our series on leadership, I'd be focusing on men on Mother's Day, which might not be ideal. And so, what do we do? Do we pause? And then if we do speak to mothers, do we go to the Word of God and seek to encourage a biblical model of motherhood, maybe admonish, maybe even challenge moms a little bit? Or do we do what a lot of pastors do and decide this is a time for that sweet, saccharine message about moms where we all leave with diabetes? Uh, how do we go about this? On the other hand, do we even, do we even uh, take the time out to acknowledge Mother's Day because, come on, this is invented by Hallmark, right? I mean, Mother's Day. So we want to sell greeting cards and sell flowers and fill up the restaurants. That's really what, uh, is that our view? <laughs> I hope not if you're a child of a mother here today, okay? Uh, I can say that. You can't say that, okay? So what do we do this morning? Well, we're going to kind of take a middle position, I think. We're going to look at a text in Titus chapter 2, and we're going to think about home life. And this is going to apply to moms, yes, but also to dads and to children as well. But certainly there is a focus on women. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. What we're going to find in this passage this morning is that it describes how the grace of God should affect our home lives. That is, if you are a believing woman or a believing man seeking to raise up children for the glory of God, God's grace in your life should have a real impact on how you do home how you do marriage, and how you do parenting. We're just going to get a a little taste of how God's grace should affect our home in this passage. Now, remember that this is written to uh, by Paul to Titus, who's ministering in Crete. Crete is an immoral culture, an idolatrous culture, certainly not embracing God's design for the home, which immediately helps us to see that this is relevant to our current situation in our culture. And so Paul is writing to Titus so that Titus will explain to the new believers on the island of Crete how God's grace in their lives should affect their homes. They're coming out of that immoral and idolatrous culture, and so they need instruction. We're quick to point out that salvation should affect our home lives. Salvation, yes, on an individual level, but then salvation should actually affect the way that we view our children. Are they inconveniences? Are they little pests that we have for a few years and can't wait to get them out of the house? Uh, How about our husband? What do we think of him? How about our wives? What do we think of them? Uh, Salvation should affect our homes. The way mom and dad relate to one another, the way mom and dad speak to their children, the way mom and dad speak to one another should all be affected by the grace of God if you are a believer. God's grace in the lives of his people should overflow to every aspect of their lives, especially the home life. And that's one of the reasons when we get back to our lessons on leadership, we're going to find, I think, next week that uh, the one of the first requirements for an elder is that his home life be in order. Because home is really where the rubber meets the road. This is where your salvation is really proved because you got to live with somebody. you got to live with your children. And all those difficulties of life. I mean, that's where your patience is tried, uh, for instance, on a regular basis. Uh, That's where the fruit of the Spirit is given a place uh, to shine. And so if I were to ask you this morning, how would you describe the culture in your home? The culture in your home. If you were to describe just the day-to-day environment and culture in your home, would you use terms like love? Would you use terms like Patience, joy, kindness, forgiveness, selflessness. 
Or, if you were to be honest, would you say, well, my home is more like harshness, impatience, grudges, arguments, cold shoulders, sarcasm, unforgiveness. If your home is described in that way, I hope that we can take this morning's message as a challenge, as a challenge. To practically see how your salvation should actually affect the culture in your house. How grace overflows into our homes. And so, before we get into some practical stuff, really focusing upon love this morning, I want you to see the theology that undergirds all of this, and why, if you're a genuine believer this morning, you should be concerned with how grace affects your house. Look in verse 11 through 14 of Titus 2. Now, verses 11 through 14 obviously coming after the passage we've already read, starts with that word for. For the grace of God has appeared. So everything prior to it really flows out of this theological reasoning. So older women, be reverent. Uh, Older women, teach the younger women. Younger women, love your husbands, love your children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive, and so on. All of this for, this is the reasoning, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." And so here in this passage, what we have is both the reasons why Christians should be living transformed lives and how they're able to do so. You can say it in this way, that this passage that we just read is really the theological fountainhead from which all Christian good works flow. So what do we learn? First, we learn that God has saved us by His grace. Look in verse 11. He saved us by His grace, for the grace of God has appeared. This means that he did not save us according to our merits, according to our good works, because of our own righteousness, but by his unmerited favor, by his grace. He saved us while we were yet sinners, while we were undeserving, in such a way that no man can ever boast of his salvation. Next, we see that we should learn from the fact that God has saved us by his grace and how we should respond to it. Verse 12, it says, training us then to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Because God has saved us by His grace, what does that show us? That we now are called to renounce worldliness, come out of the world, be different, be transformed by His grace. Some would argue that if we're saved by grace and not by works, then that then becomes some justification or some cloak uh, by which we can shield our sin and say, well, I'm saved by grace, it's all under grace, I can live however I want because grace, that's not at all what Paul is saying. He's saying, since the grace of God has appeared, therefore then, live this way. And so our good works actually flow out of grace. We don't excuse a lack of good works under the umbrella of grace. What else do we see? Well, we see that grace does not remove a motivation for a life of good works, but it fuels it. And so in response to our being saved by the grace of God, we're led to renounce worldliness, to renounce worldly passions. Now, That's stated in the negative. What else does it say here in verse 12 of Titus 2? He says we are to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives. And then that strong word, renounce. To renounce something is to give it up, to disavow, to reject. And he says we are to uh, renounce the worldly passions and ungodliness. And so the deliberate determined attitude of a genuine believer is, I'm no longer living like the world. I've come out of that culture. And what we're going to see in our text then is if our attitude is to come out of the culture and to be different from the culture, to disavow, to reject the culture's philosophies and values, then that's going to affect how we do home life. Our life now is to be marked by a reverent fear of God, which leads us to bring our passions under his control. Now just flip over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Now, this describes every believer. If you were here last yesterday at the ladies' luncheon, you were blessed to hear Tina's testimony. And I think Titus chapter 3, verse 3, just reflects very well. I think 
Tina's testimony reflects very well what we see in Titus chapter 3, verse 3 here. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So again, even in this passage, in the positive, the believer saved by the grace of God lives a life characterized by self-control, righteous character, overall godliness. And what does it say? It says that we are to live this way, back to Titus chapter 2, verse 12, we are to live this way in this present age. Why would Paul have to tell Titus to tell the believers in Crete that you are to live upright, godly lives in this present age? Because when God saves people, he doesn't take them out of the culture. He makes them different from the culture, but he still has us live that out in the midst of a godless culture. And so if you're so grieved by the culture around you and you think, you know, we want to go buy a plot of land somewhere and build a compound, don't do that. God keeps his children right in the midst of and says, be light in darkness. Just be salt in the midst of the decay. And so uh, that's how God parents us. Doesn't remove us from it, but he enables us to withstand and to be his examples in the midst of it. And so Paul says to Titus, tell the believers in Crete, live upright and godly lives in the present age. God has designed our faith, by the way, to rear up under the culture that we're in. Even though it's sometimes hostile and it's somewhat oppressive and it grieves you to your heart, your faith is designed where you can live it out. You're going to live to the glory of God, even in the midst of this present age. And what attitude then helps one remain faithful to live that type of life in this present age and to not buckle under the pressure when you see the culture just becoming insane? You know, we did the catechism. Did that sound controversial to you, that catechism we did? I mean, did you say, oh my goodness, I can't believe they're saying that. Because you know what Jared said is that God created us, man, in his image, male and female. He created them. Isn't that incredible that such a simple statement that said 10 years ago, nobody would have batted an eye uh, at, but now seeing something like that almost seems as if, you know, get, get the mob uh, fomented because we got to cancel somebody because somebody said male and female. Incredible. That's the culture around us. And Paul is telling Titus, hey, it's these types of cultures in which God's people are to live upright and godly lives. So what keeps us going? Even though the culture seems to be just running off a cliff, what keeps us going? Even in the midst of growing hostility towards uh, biblical morality. Well, it says there in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The believer can swim against the stream of the culture by renouncing ungodliness, by uh, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and living in self-control and pursuing righteousness while tolerating any stigma and any persecution and any hostility from the culture because he's living in anticipation of Christ's return. Christ will return, and he sets everything right. And so he vindicates, and he brings justice, and those who belong to him will be glorified. And with that hope, we can endure whatever hostility or stigma the world throws at us in the present age. And so we are anticipating the return of Christ, full and final salvation. And so we're not beholden to this world. We're not trying to make it in this world, to be accepted by this world. It's okay. We don't need to be. Why? Because Christ is returning. Like a traveler who's just passing through, we're not putting down roots. Our treasure is in heaven, and so our values and our priorities and our motivations and our goals are all heavenly as well. But look at another motivation here. It says that we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. On the one hand, Jesus is returning, and so we're not going to put down roots here. We're living in anticipation of his return. We're not living for acceptance by the world. On the other hand, we also understand that when Jesus walked this earth, he gave himself for the very purpose of redeeming us from lawlessness, and so far be it from us to live in that way. 
He gave himself to redeem us from that, and he's currently working to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the very thing Jesus accomplished on the cross is still accomplishing through his ever-present intercession for us is to make a people who want to live lives of good works. So that's a motivation. So it's not just that we live a transformed life because we're living in the hope of his return, but this is the very purpose for which Christ redeemed us. So Jesus is returning, and the Jesus who is returning is the one who gave his life for us. All that should motivate us to good works. Now, in verse 14, again, it says that what characterizes God's people is that we are zealous for good works, and what I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that that zeal for good works that we have as those who have been purified as possessions of Christ ought to spill over into our homes. The fact that we have been saved by God's grace should lead us to renounce ungodliness, live self-controlled, righteous, godly lives in the midst of a hostile culture. We can persevere in such a counter-cultural lifestyle because our values and our priorities and our motivations are heavenly and spiritual. We know we don't belong in this world. We belong to Jesus who died for us to make a people who are passionate about good works. And we are anticipating his return at which time we will be united to him for eternity. And so, back to our text in chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. This shows us how all of this is to be lived out in our home life. So what does it look like when God's people are zealous for good works and God's grace hits home? It looks like a willingness to embrace God's design for the home even in the midst of a hostile culture which does not. We say that with an acknowledgement that what is contained in Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 5, has become controversial. Not because the text has changed. It's become controversial because the culture has changed. And isn't it amazing how the culture shifts and what would have been accepted just as the more normal ethos or, or mores of the culture just 10 years ago, uh, now you feel like you are some sort of uh, rebellious, revolting reprobate for daring to hold the same values that everyone held uh, not too long ago. What's contained in these verses is controversial, sure it's become controversial, because the culture is engaging in a war against design, a war against God's design. It's been clear that for many decades, our culture has been waging a war against every facet of God's design beyond decades. But in the last uh, so many decades, this has manifested itself in a sort of sexual revolution, which has really hit the home hard. Wherever God has designed, it seems that the culture seeks to mar that design. God designed the nuclear family, so the culture seeks to denigrate and devalue the nuclear family. God designed male and female so the culture seems to or desire, desires to distort and to disfigure male and female. God designed sex for marriage, and so the culture says, well, let's just put it outside of marriage. God designed marriage to be monogamous, and so the culture says, well, that sounds pretty boring and too restraining. God designed the natural act of sex, and so we must pervert it. God designed sex to be confined to a committed relationship between one male and one female, married for life. And I had to adapt that, and now I have to say God designed sex to be confined to the committed relationship of marriage between one biological male and one biological female with the general possibility of childbearing. And so the culture seeks to mar and distort that as well. We take sex out of marriage, we put it between any combination of sexes, prevent childbearing so as to eliminate any need for commitment and so on. Everywhere God has his fingerprints of design The culture says no. Even it's gotten so severe that we've gotten to the point where, you know, I will not even allow the authority of a creator in the realm of determining my gender. I'll not be told who to obey. I will not be told who to marry. I will not be told what my family unit ought to look like. I will not be told with whom I can have sex. I will not be told when I can have sex. I will not be told when I will bear a child or if I should bear a child. And I will not even be told what my gender is. Psalm 2 says that the culture screams back to God, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is too constraining. We do not want the authority of God. And so everywhere there's the fingerprints of design. Design speaks to purpose, and design speaks to authority. 
If we see designed, then that means that some greater authority uh, had some plans in place and designed this thing for a purpose. And so man in his rebellion says, no, uh, we will not accept, accept an authority, therefore we cannot accept his design. So it should be apparent to everyone, I think here this morning, that everything I just said is being played out around us, right before our eyes, blatantly, arrogantly, in the realm of sex and gender and marriage and family and home life. So then, those who have been saved by Jesus, called out of the world to renounce ungodliness and so on, those who are called out to be zealous for good works, whom he is purifying as his possession, part of that zeal for good works will look like all of us who are believers embracing God's design for the home rejecting the culture's culture's redefinition of the home and attack against God's design for the home. And so that's why I say this passage has become controversial. That's why those purified as the possessions of Christ, zealous for good works, must be prepared to be different, even prepared to suffer the hostility of a culture. Not only this... But we see that the church is charged, in Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 4, the church is charged to actively be working to pass on the knowledge of this design to the next generation. It's the obligation of the church to teach and pass it on to the next generation. So look in Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 4 again. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And what are they to teach? And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. So part of the function of the church is to be actively teaching. Actively teaching the next generation of young women what God's design for home life is. And men, but this particular text is dealing with women. So there is, this, is to be an ongoing teaching ministry in the church. Uh, you know, have you ever heard anybody say to you, Hey, Christian parent, it's really unfair for you to be raising your kids up and indoctrinating them with your faith. Just let them grow up and decide for themselves. Okay, sounds reasonable. But the problem is the culture is constantly indoctrinating. The culture does not take a break from teaching. The culture does not take a break from indoctrination. And so whether it be through the media, or whether it be through curriculum, or whatever it is, the culture has a value system. It's not as if we have a value system, and we have a morality, and the culture is neutral. Not at all. I mean, do you have Disney Plus, right? (laughs) I did at one point, not anymore. But uh, there is an agenda. There is a culture which is indoctrinating and teaching and is relentless and doesn't stop. And then we're told that you can't pass your faith onto your children while you let them pass their value system onto your children? I don't think so. And so the church, parents, home life, to be continually teaching and passing on God's design to the next generation. And so it says here, Older women, teach the younger women. Teach them God's design for the home. The sad thing about our culture is that all that the culture is teaching, which we would look and say from a biblical perspective is wholly immoral and reprobate, frankly. The culture is actually passing off these things under the banner of morality. The culture successfully stigmatizes anybody who will not comply. If you will not comply with the culture's new morality, then you are immoral. If you're not compliant with what the culture is teaching, then you are the one to be rejected. You are the one to be corrected. You potentially are the one even to be punished. And it seems a necessary moral obligation as the culture is couching the conversation. That's why every position which supports elements of God's design in our culture is turned around and characterized as negative or a disorder. You stand for God's design for sexuality? Well, then you are anti-LGBT. If you're pro-life, you are anti-choice. If you're not simply, uh, if you are not Let's put it this way. If you are upholding God's design for sexuality, then you are some sort of phobe. There's something wrong with you. I mean, you you have a condition. You need to get this checked out. You need some treatment. You need some re-education because you have phobias and you have fears. And uh, obviously there's something wrong with you. Like, come on. It's so clearly a tactic 
that's used so successfully over and over and over again, uh, and it's been so incredibly successful, come up with some idea that violates God's design and that's trying to push some type of reprobation or perversion. And then on the other hand, have some, something in, in the wings here ready to ostracize or stigmatize anybody who disagrees with some negative uh, phrase accusing you of bigotry or something, and then, uh, then what? And then have some type of culture where that if anybody speaks up, you just pummel them with public shame. And then you know what? Once that's successful, then we'll come up with some newer or greater expression of reprobation or perversion, and then we're going to do it all over again. And so you're a homophobe. Okay, well, now you're a transphobe. And you know what? It works. It works every time. Everybody capitulates to it. And frankly, even Christians are intimidated because of such a culture. Like, just call it out for what it is. This is ridiculous. Thankfully, it seems even the secular culture seems to have had a a little bit too much when it comes to this new push for or within the trans movement. Now you're not just a homophobe, now you're a transphobe. Why? Because you dare say that a biological male is still a male, regardless of how they wish to identify. Listen, uh, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We're to have a good reputation among the culture. We're to deal with the culture in a very, very wise way with their souls in mind. Absolutely. But please strike the balance well, Right? Uh, show love to the culture, even while they're captive to their sin, but don't compromise. Don't compromise. Compassion without compromise, okay? And uh, find that proper balance. And some of you, I think, have struck the balance well. There may be some among us who, who haven't struck the balance very well. And so in the name of love and compassion and grace, maybe you've gone a little bit too far in the other direction so that uh, you've given up too much in your attempt to reach the culture when it comes to these things. So just... Maybe a little note. That wasn't in my, that wasn't planned to be said, but I think that might be helpful to us. So the church is to keep teaching. If we recognize God's design for man, and we have embraced that as those zealous for, God, for, for, for good works, then we're to be actively passing that on to the next generation. The church teaches understanding that the culture also teaches. The culture does not relent, and so the church doesn't relent. So with that, Let's look again at just what the older women are to teach the younger women. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so as a product of that teaching, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be Reviled. Now, you always have the challenge when you're preaching or teaching, when you come to a text that focuses on one sex, to have the what about syndrome. Okay, it says this, but what about the men? Yeah, I get it. You, you focus on children, what about the parents? You focus on parents, what about the children? You focus on the husband, what about the wife? Just understand that when you come to a text like this, yes, understand that the Bible says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Men are called to lay down their lives for their wives. Men are called to have a sacrificing, sanctifying love for their wives. And how did Christ love the church? Uh, well, Christ loved the church while the church were yet sinners, and yet he showed his love towards us. How did Christ love the church? Well, Christ loved the church sacrificially, giving himself and actually suffering for the sins of the church. We'll relate that to what men are called to do for their wives. And so God tells a husband, love your wife. You say, well, but you don't know what my wife is like. Well, what was the church like when Christ died for her? And so, yeah, recognize that balance, okay? Men have that high calling, but when the Scripture focuses on one, uh, let's give it its due and let's focus on this, understanding that there is an inherent balance to Scripture and you can't say everything in every sermon. Okay. Is that that sufficient, this qualifier? Uh, Okay, let's continue. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And here we see this biblical focus, the value of home life, and really respecting God's design of male and female and understanding that there are uh, gender roles, frankly. God has designed men and women to be very different, and he's designed us to be very different because he has designed for us different roles. 
and understanding we're not trying to pigeonhole anybody here. We're not trying to say barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. Okay, that's not at all what we're saying here. Uh, understand that although we are physiologically different and we're actually mentally different, there is actually no difference when it comes to IQ or intelligence between men and women. Nobody's ever suggesting that here, or they shouldn't suggest that. What we're saying is that God has made us different, and he has given us uh, differing roles on the basis of how we are created, generally speaking. Okay, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And so here we find an assumption. The assumption is that, generally speaking, uh, young women will marry. Generally speaking, young women will marry. That's not to say that young women must marry. We know that's not true because of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But it is to say that, generally speaking, young women will marry, and it also says we are to value that idea. And generally speaking, no, I shouldn't say that, not generally speaking, women marry, young women marry, but also what does it indicate is that young women marry men, according to Scripture. That's the assumption here, taken for granted. Young women marry, young women marry men. So, the older women are teaching the younger women to honor God with their sexuality. And to do so is to live as a woman redeemed by Christ who is zealous for good works. And so those young women here this morning who embrace God's design, who recognize that God has saved me by his grace, I'm to be called out of the culture, which means I reject the culture's uh, uh, view of marriage and sex and home life. And I am submissive to what the Lord has Uh, presented to me biblically regarding marriage, sex, and home life. And so we just want to focus on this today, and and then we're done. The older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands and children. That's it. Love their husbands and children. We're not going to continue on to the rest of the text today. But here's a question. Why would a young woman or a wife have to be instructed to love her husband? I mean, didn't you marry him because you loved him? Why would you need that instruction? Isn't it most, the most natural thing in the world for a wife to love her husband and her children? I mean, haven't you ever been around newlyweds? It's disgusting. <laughs> Sorry. It's not disgusting. Uh, it's very natural and wonderful. Uh, no. I think we have some newlyweds here today, so I take that back. Strike that from the record. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't hear that. Um, You know what I'm saying, though. The dating couple, that newlywed phase, it doesn't last, does it? And if you're here today and saying, oh, every time I touch my wife's hands, I get butterflies. And we've been married for 25 years. It's like nobody wants to hear you. Just, just, We're happy for you, but be quiet. Uh, The newlywed phase doesn't last, does it? Nor is it intended to last. That early infatuation driven by hormones and fantasy soon gives way to reality. That man that you could only wish, you could, I, just, I just wish that our marriage wasn't a year away. I want to marry you tomorrow. But that man becomes familiar. And he becomes boring. And that suit of armor that your white knight was wearing all of a sudden doesn't look as shiny. There's dents in it. And it doesn't fit as well as it once did, for instance. <laughs> The point is both men and women are commanded to love their spouses because love is a deliberate choice. That's not based solely upon emotion. Love your husbands, he says. And so I think we'd just be well served to look at what love is. What is love? Well, Paul says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. He says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But love, what? It endures forever. And so he says, love is patient. Love is patient. Patience and frustration are polar opposites. Do you lose your patience sometimes? I know I do. Love, however, is patient. If you're continually losing your patience in your home life with your husband or with your children, and yes, let's balance it out and say husbands with your wife or with your children, what does that indicate? A lack of love. Love forbears. Love puts up with. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. Love does not seek to right all wrongs in the moment. Instead, love says, you know, let this pass. Uh, Love bears all things, as we're going to see, and love covers a multitude of sins. And so love 
is patient. And so as we think about our home lives, would we say that the way that mom and dad react with one another and the way mom and dad deal with their children, could we then look at that home and say, patience, I see patience here. Paul goes on to say that love is kind. It's easy to show kindness when we're happy, but loving kindness is not dependent upon circumstances. The kindness Paul is talking about here flows from a loving heart. And so, yes, Proverbs 31, verse 26 says, She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Pleasant words. Affirming words. Not harsh. Not sarcastic. Not argumentative. Not self-centered. But a mom choosing her words purposefully to build up. To build up. Even when our children must be corrected, we can disapprove of actions without the rejection of the person. This is so important. Consequences for sin, but consequences which are administered by a loving parent. And so let me just encourage you parents, moms, even as you have to discipline your children, you focus on the action. You don't denigrate the person. You deal with the action, you deal with the consequences with that, and immediately you ensure that your child knows that your relationship is not harmed, right? That's the way that the Lord disciplines us. So the Lord chastens all those whom he loves, but we should never have any doubt that he loves us and that our relationship with him is solid and on a firm foundation. And the same is true when we discipline. And so that's why we say, parents, if your child disobeys, just deal with the disobedience. Deal with it quickly, uh, deal with it properly, and then make sure there's very, very clear there's reconciliation, and then move on, right, with your day, and make sure there's a loving atmosphere in the home. No cold shoulder, no prolonged bitterness, but deal with it and move on. Deal with it with patience, deal with it with kindness, and then don't ever allow your child to feel as if they don't know what their standing is in their relationship with you. And so... The young woman who's zealous for good works, being purified by the Lord Jesus Christ and called out of the culture, is loving, patient, kind to her husband and to her children. It says next that love does not envy, according to Paul. Biblical love is self-sacrificing. We give ourselves to others. We don't envy. Well, Is there envy in, in the home life? Is it possible for a mother to envy her husband? Is it possible for a wife to envy her husband? Maybe. If you're a mom of small children here today, then you know, yes, it is possible. Because he gets to go out there and interrupt, and he gets to talk to grown-ups, right? Uh, he gets to be out there, and he gets to interact with peers, receiving a sense of affirmation and accomplishment in the workplace, for instance. Even the godliest mother of little ones can sometimes forget the vital role that mothering plays. It's easy to forget how the loving devotion of the formative years of a child's life impacts their entire lives. It's easy to lose perspective and not remember that these days are temporary. This is a season that will soon pass. Without that perspective, it's easy to envy and say, I wish that I could have that life and we could just trade places. But what we need is a biblical perspective on mothering. Children are a gift from God. The fruit of the womb is his reward. He has designed family life to include the intimate relationship between mother and child for a reason. From the very first moments when a child is born and placed upon the warm chest of a mom, the smell of mom, the warmth of mom, the sound of mom, and then immediately the Lord designs this so that that child learns that he's dependent upon the sustenance from mom. And then that child grows and continues in a dependence upon mom to one degree or another. It's just amazing to me. I was looking at uh, Kayla and JP's son Samuel the other day. And I'm thinking, it's just amazing how helpless God leaves. You know, how do you say? Okay, people are not like deer. That's a good way to put it. Uh, you see a deer born and within moments is on its own legs. You can walk around. Humans aren't like that. We're just helpless little blobs, right? And it's like, and it's... It, it's rewarding once they start smiling. He's like, okay, now I'm getting something from this, right? But up until that point, it's feed and change a diaper. That's all it is. But, but once that child can look at you and smile, and you're like, wow. Uh, but the child is helpless. And th possibly 
that child is dependent in one way or another on mom for how, for how long? A month? Two months? A year? Two years? Three years? Four years? Ten years? Twelve years? Fourteen years? Eighteen years? Perhaps? And then even beyond? Isn't that incredible? And that bond that uh, continues on into adulthood begins in the first moments of birth, after the first moments of birth. This is God's design. Mom's role in a child's life is essential. It's not glamorous. It does not come with earthly accolades oftentimes, but it is invaluable. And so important because you're not always going to get the praise that motherhood deserves. And so it's so important then to look biblically to see the value that God places upon it. And you can even preach to yourself, ladies, and say, listen, this role is important. This is valuable. Look what God says about mothering and home life. And so if we lose sight of that, it's easy to envy. But to love her husband is not to envy her husband. To love her children is not to envy other families, not to compare her children to other children. He refuses to put pressure upon her own children to measure up or to compete with the children of others, for instance. Love does not envy. Next of all, love is not rude. The loving wife and mother is not rough or uncaring. Instead, she's honorable and respectful. Have you ever met that man or woman who says, you know, it's just part of my personality. I just speak my mind. You met that person? And they wear it almost like a badge of honor. To be rude is to be short and frustrated and irritated and demanding and even to feel that freedom just to state what you're thinking at any time regardless of how it affects others. A loving wife and mother honors her husband and children as those like herself who are created in the image of God and is sure not to respond rudely. And again, that's true for all believers, right, towards one another. Next of all, love is not selfish or irritable. Love is not selfish or irritable. Mothering, just by virtue of its basic design, excludes any possibility of selfishness, especially in the early stages. Mothering by nature is self-sacrificing. The physicality of childbearing, childbirth, childrearing, takes such a physical toll, sometimes irreparable even to a woman's body. This is how God has designed mothering. Such a design requires selflessness. A loving mother by nature says, I will give my body for my children. And child bearing and child rearing. I mean, that's a high calling. And it's just an amazing design. And let's just take a second here, husbands and fathers, and remember that, you know, dads, we already talked about newlyweds a little bit. and No, wait, we struck that from the record. Okay, we're moving on. Have you ever met that couple who said, Oh, we're pregnant. The man saying, we're pregnant. I get it, trying to show support and so on. But you're not pregnant. And God has designed your wife to be pregnant. And really, this is having a far greater toll on your wife than it is on you. Although, man, I've seen some of you gain weight when your wife is pregnant. (laughs) But this is affecting your wife's body. She's bearing in her body the marks of childbearing. The intellectual toll, the emotional toll, the hormonal toll, that is borne by the woman. And it's one of the ultimate acts of selflessness for a woman to bear and to rear a child. That being said, we still need the reminder. Love is not selfish or irritable. Because once those little kids grow up and develop their own personalities, now it seems like there's a temptation to be irritable with them. Mothering and selfishness are incompatible. Vanity, superficiality are not compatible with mothering. You have to be willing to bear in your body, again, the marks of mothering. Wanderlust, selfish determination not to be held down by others, that's not compatible with mothering. Once a child is born, that child becomes priority, and many other things are put on hold. The loving wife, like the loving husband, is not selfish or given irritability. Her love for her husband, her love for her children sees her putting their desires first. And again, also, we can quickly say all believers are called to put the desires of others first. Love is not resentful. The loving wife and mother does not hold a record of wrongs. She does not hold grudges against her husband or repeatedly bring up his faults or failures or past offenses. Nor does she hold resentment towards her children. When she corrects or disciplines her children, again, she does it while maintaining a relationship of love and acceptance. When correction is complete... 
She does not harbor lingering anger or resentment in the home. It is loving to discipline and forgive, thus taking away the stigma of the wrong. Next of all, love never ends. We're going to close here. The loving wife and mother loves for life. Marriage is a lifelong covenant commitment between a man and a woman. A young woman, or say the young women who marry should understand the nature of love. Even after infatuation fades and novelty wears off, love endures. It's a lifelong commitment for a woman to give herself faithfully to her children living out and husband, living out the characteristics of love for their benefit. And then he, as a loving husband, has the exact same obligations towards her. Both of them, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, will do this with an understanding that this is God's design for the home. They'll pursue it even in the face of a culture which denigrates the nuclear family. They'll pursue it even in the midst of a culture which is increasingly hostile towards God's design. They're going to do it like that because what? They understand they've been saved by God's grace. All of this flows from the fact that the grace of God has appeared, redeeming us from lawlessness and ungodliness. They will ensure that they live out their roles at home to the glory of God because Jesus Christ has purified them for that very purpose. And what if you feel like an utter failure in all of those things? And that's the danger with a message like this. Moms, I understand there's something called mom guilt. And dads, I think you experience that as well, dad guilt. And you are so, many of you are so um, aware of your personal failings, especially in the home. You lie in bed at night just starting to nod off to go to sleep and you start thinking about your failures throughout the day. I shouldn't have responded that way to my child. I should have done that. Oh, they're, they're, they're lacking this or whatever. I understand mom guilt. But please understand that these are given to us as encouragement and instruction. And yeah, we ought to do some self-examination and so on. But the Lord is gracious and he is merciful. He understands your weaknesses and is sympathetic towards those weaknesses. Okay, moms? So don't beat yourselves up. Instead, say, Lord, you're merciful. The same grace that saved me is the grace that will enable me to fulfill the calling that you've called me to, right? God will supply everything you need to fulfill your, his calling in your life. So don't beat yourself up over this. Have mercy uh, on yourself, understanding that God is merciful towards you, and just pray for his grace in order to measure up or to meet uh, the calling that he's given you. And so we pursue good works at home, not to earn favor with God, but because God has already shown us favor in Christ. We will fail, absolutely, but God is gracious. And just know that you're not going to parent perfectly, moms and dads. Faithfulness is your goal, and then pray for God's mercy to fill in the gaps, right? Ultimately, that's every area in life. I could not function as a pastor if I didn't have that attitude. Seek to be faithful and just pray for God's mercy on your weaknesses and that he'll fill in Fill in the rest. And he does. Christ has purified us in order that we might be zealous for good works, and that purification continues. So don't be discouraged. Rest in his grace. So in conclusion, if if you desired to describe your home life, could you say of your home, in our home we are passionate to do good works, we pursue godliness, we deny worldly passions, We encourage self-control. We value character. We live for God in an age which doesn't. We're waiting in hope for our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who redeems us and who owns us and who is purifying us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, I just pray for the moms here this morning. Lord, I understand that they're Godly mom constantly doing self-assessment and oftentimes might be discouraged in home feeling as if they're not measuring up. We just pray that you deliver them from self-condemnation. Instead, help them to look for you, look to you for mercy, for grace, for strength. Lord, it's a high calling, being a mom, being a dad. It's really an impossible calling for us to do perfectly. And so, Lord, we just pray you'd help us be faithful. We understand you're sympathetic to our weaknesses and all things. And uh, Lord, you meet us where we're at. You give us grace, which is sufficient to meet the task that you've given us. So 
Lord, we just pray for moms this morning who have sought to love their kids, to raise them up for your glory. And Lord, they failed in many ways. We all fail in many ways, but we just pray that you'll give them that assurance that you're present and you are able and you're gracious. Help them to continue on in faithfulness, trusting you and not ultimately their own efforts, uh, but recognizing that uh, you're merciful and you're good and that ultimately all of our kids are in your hands. And so I pray you would encourage us that way. And then, Lord, if there's some uh, this morning, frankly, who might need might have needed this text as a little bit of an admonition. Maybe they've allowed their fleshly passions to take control. Maybe their home has been one where there's irritability, rudeness, impatience. I pray that you'd remind them of their calling. Uh, moms and dads both. Uh, to be loving in the home. To have the grace of God overflow. Have the fruit of the Spirit evident uh, uh, in their home life and how they deal with conflict and how they discipline and how they deal with just the regular routine of life. Uh, so correct us, admonish us, challenge us in areas where we failed, but then help us to rest in your grace. And then lastly, Lord, we just pray this morning for those who are here who have not yet experienced your grace, or they're still living in worldly passions, they're still buying into the world's philosophies, the culture's value system. Uh, we just pray that they would see their need for Jesus, that they too also can be delivered, can be uh, claimed as your possession, one in whom you are purifying, uh, to be zealous for good works. And then I pray that you would continue to instruct them as to what that looks like, to live out your grace. Lord, we thank you for this and thank you for your goodness. Bless uh, moms today and give them that extra strength and invigoration as they consider your design. Help them to be reminded once again of the incredible value that you place upon motherhood. Help them to reject the cultural notion of family life and motherhood. And instead, just see the incredible value as you presented it in Scripture. And so just re-energize them to get back at it and to be that godly mom to their kids and loving wife to their husbands. And then we pray also for children, that they'd obey their parents as you've designed, and that husbands will love their wives as Christ loved the church as you've designed. We thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.